Okay. <clears throat> okay, welcome. Welcome to uh, our event today on banking and sovereign risk. Um, so I note that the title has both sovereign risk and banking risk in the title, and I think we will have to discuss whether sovereign debt is risk-free uh, or not and how that should be treated, and we will have to discuss how it links to banking risks. Um, it's a great pleasure to host this event today, um, and um, this event um, <clears throat> is an event around um, uh, a journal that um, is published um, by, uh, I think you are the main editor, right? Or the, uh, this George, George is the main editor. Okay, so you're the editors. Um, and uh, the, the, I think the volume has a, a collection of papers around this, this topic. Um, from and I think here we see the different the different articles, um, including um, I mean uh, di very different positions on this, including one uh, by by Jochen Andritzky from uh, from the German Sachverständigenrat, sort of with a more German perspective, and we actually have uh, have him. Uh, next week, coming here, uh, discuss the same issue from a di little bit of a different, different angle, um, and um, and of course, lots of the authors are also here. Eric Nielsen is here. Um, um, Andrea, Andrea, Andrea is here. Uh, Mario, did you write also a chapter? No, not this time. You're discussing. So, uh, so, uh, so we have a, 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 a crowd of different views um, uh, around this topic. Now, let me also say that um, Alexander Schulz, um, unfortunately, uh, canceled this morning. Uh, he's um, uh, head of risk analysis division, bank and financial supervision department at the Bundesbank. He unfortunately had to cancel because he's sick, so we will have to do without him. And so I think I will have to inject a little bit of a, a different, uh, different point of view um, uh, in, in this panel. Um, so I think without much, much further ado, uh, let me give the floor to Giorgio um, uh, for, for opening, uh, and then um, uh, Alberto, you will kick it off and sort of summarize the main, the main points from the, from the journal. Uh, Guntram, thank you very much. Uh, I want, really want to thank you and Bruegel for hosting this event. It's a great partnership. And, uh, you know, I'm pleased to see so many people coming to this uh, launch for this new issue of European economy. Actually, today is a birthday. We, we, I was, uh, immediately I realized it's the birthday of European economy. The journal was launched exactly one year ago. Here at Bruegel, uh, the first issue was uh, on capital requirements for large banks. So I'm really pleased we managed to have another event just on the 5th of July. Maybe oh, we should have it every year. Like every 4th of July, July, every 5th of July, we can have a launch of a new issue of European economy. For people who do not know about the journal, the journal is essentially an internet platform for a debate on uh, reg regulatory issues concerning banks. Uh, between academics, policymakers, and uh, people who are in the industry. So that's the purpose of the journal. You can see it online. You find it. It's very, uh, very easy to find it on the internet. Perhaps we will post later the the, the right address of the of the journal. Uh, actually. Each issue is on one specific topic, uh, it's, so it's monothematic. And uh, this year, we, this time, we chose the pretty 
difficult and controversial issue, which uh, is the essentially the, 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 the issue of how to regulate banks' exposure towards sovereigns. Uh, it's a very controversial issue, as you know, and I think it's really a little bit at the heart of the standstill of the evolution of the banking union within the euro area. Uh, and actually, there is this issue of whether you know, we can go ahead with uh, uh, having a common European deposit insurance scheme and complete the banking union in this direction, and at the same time, having addressed the issue of uh, asymmetric, if you want, sovereign risks across member states within uh, the union. I hope, really, we have managed to provide a, a fair and informed account, and I really hope you will read the, uh, the issue. Alberto Pozzolo will give you the, what are the main conclusions that are emerging from this issue. As you can see, and Guntram has said, we have a fair and good balance of paper, also from people, as it is in our spirit and tradition, coming from different backgrounds, institutions and banks and academics. Uh, and I think also the panel today, the mix of the panel today, is, uh, uh, it has been constructed with similar spirit and balance. Now, uh, there are, I just wanted to say three things of substance before giving the floor uh, to Alberto, which will give you the deep insights. I think that uh, there are three, three issues that, uh, uh, at least two main issues that we are trying to raise within this uh, number, this issue of the journal. The first one is that actually dealing with this question of how to uh, regulate sovereign exposure is very different on whether we are uh, looking at uh, discussing at the issue within a monetary and banking union, so within the euro area, or if we are discussing this out for any individual country. If you look, a lot of the debate, also the academic debate, is very much focused on the issue. Uh, the issue is treated in general terms. You know, should uh, how do we should should we treat uh, banks' exposure towards sovereign? You know, in any context. Whereas I think that the monetary union raises uh, very important specificity that we need to address. Uh, the second is that frequently, I think, in the debate, there is a lot of confusion on the timings of events we are discussing. So I think the timings to understand exactly and to discuss and highlight what happened in different times, I think it's very important. And of course, we identify, if you want, uh, uh, three clear-cut uh, uh, distinct temporal uh, stages, which are frequently mixed up. But the first one is the inception and the evolution of the, of the first, initially the financial crisis and then the sovereign crisis. So what happened at that, in that stage and what was done at the time? Uh, the second one is what should be done in normal times? So should, what is the ideal policy design that we should implement in normal time, which is another issue? And the third one is what should we do in the transition between the crisis and the normal times? And of of course, the transition is crucial because we all know that adjustment costs for these policies are very high and needs to be addressed very careful, uh, carefully and understood very well. So really, 
the discussion on the one hand is really the union versus the rest, and the other one is let's be careful and reason in terms of different timing phases in order to come up with a viable solution to this problem. That's the key issue. So I thank you again, and I thank you uh, again, Guntram and Bruckel, for their hospitalities, and of course all the participants and all those that contributed to the journal. And please go online and read the journal, which is very interesting. Th thank you, Giorgio, and uh, again, I think it's a great pleasure to have sort of the second um, uh, journal launched, also the second I issue of this journal launched here, so it's, it's great to really discuss. And it's extremely timely, I mean, we got a lot of people really interested in, in exactly this topic at this moment, so I think it's, it's really a great pick today. Um, Alberto, perhaps you want to start introducing the book. Yeah. Uh... So, thank you very much uh, to everybody. George already thanks everybody. And uh, uh, I will also add that uh, uh, this is a, the presentation is pretty much uh, going through the editorial that we wrote together with uh, Giacomo Calzari, who cannot be here because he had a number of uh, flight problems uh, from Rodi to Bologna, from Bologna from here to here. And also with uh, the help of so, Josue Manuel Mancilla Fernandez, who is our editorial assistant that helped very much uh, to uh, wrap up everything uh, in, this, uh, in this issue. Uh, as George said, uh, we are gonna touch uh, uh, mainly three issues here. So uh, the bank sovereign crisis in a monetary union, is it different uh, uh, from a bank, crisis, uh, bank sovereign crisis outside the monetary union? The second issue is whether the interventions uh, that we are taking uh, uh, to tame the diabolic loop between banks and sovereigns in the Eurozone were appropriate or not, uh, and then we are talking about uh, what is the optimal regulatory setting, uh, uh, but not just a long-run optimal regulatory setting, uh, but also uh, the transition uh, from where we are now to this uh, uh, long-run uh, uh, setting in normal conditions. Let me anticipate uh, uh, what are our main conclusions. Uh, we do believe that the implementation of some risk-sharing mechanisms uh, during the crisis, uh, during the sovereign debt crisis, helped uh, to tame uh, the loop between banks and sovereigns. But at the same time, uh, they made it unsustainable uh, to keep considering all sovereigns uh, uh, equally risk-free in the balance sheet of banks. Uh, because uh, the very moment in which you have a, a risk-sharing mechanism, uh, you also want to recognize uh, that uh, there are different degrees of riskiness uh, in what you have uh, in uh, your balance sheet on what actually uh, the government of each country uh, is. So, this leads uh, to the necessity to do something. The condition uh, in which we are staying at the moment uh, uh, cannot be sustained in the longer run. Uh, and what we think needs to be done is to, on one hand, enhance risk sharing within uh, uh, the union, so take to completion the uh, process of building uh, uh, a banking union, and uh, also recognizing and addressing uh, the risk asymmetries uh, among sovereigns, uh, so essentially addressing the problem uh, that is the other uh, step of uh, uh, what we are analyzing today. We think that these two elements are definitely and inevitably tangled together and need to be addressed together. We all know that uh, uh, last week uh, there's been uh, a decision by ECFIN saying that uh, uh, unless we solve one of the legs, uh, we cannot solve the other. It is uh, very unclear at the moment uh, which leg is going to be solved first. Uh, we do think that the two things must go on together. And also we think that uh, we must take care of the transition path. Uh, and during this transition path, uh, we maybe want to use uh, all the different tools uh, that economics uh, provides to us uh, to address the problems of the transition path. Let me start with some 
simple stylized facts. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, until a few years ago, at least in developed countries, uh, we didn't have the belief uh, that uh, uh, domestic government debt could be, uh, could be risky. Uh, between 1950 and 2010, uh, no OECD country defaulted uh, on its domestic debt. Uh, we had, of course, some partial default uh, uh, on Greece recently, but still, uh, uh, there is the belief uh, that uh, these kind of government bonds cannot default. But still, uh, we have seen very well uh, that uh, uh, there is risk. Uh, there is risk, uh, and this is uh, uh, what came out uh, quite clearly during the sovereign uh, that crisis with this spike on sovereign bond 10-year CDSs uh, that was uh, accompanied, at least from uh, a time perspective, uh, with a spike uh, in bike five-year CDSs. So the riskiness of overnight bonds went up together with the riskiness of banks. And we know from uh, uh, the academic literature that in some countries uh, the direction of causality went from sovereign bonds to banks. In some other countries it went from banks uh, to sovereign bonds. In some other countries actually it went in both directions. Uh, and, and you couldn't in the end figure out uh, which one uh, was uh, uh, causing uh, uh, the other. Now, given these uh, uh, stylized facts, uh, the question that uh, we addressed is whether central banks uh, uh, in a country that have their own currency can do something different from central banks that are uh, in a monetary union. Uh, in a country where the central bank has its own currency, in a case of distress, it can buy sovereign bonds. And we all, we all know that in this case, the only side effect would be that uh, of having an impact on price stability. If you buy too many bonds, you're monetizing your debt. Uh, but then uh, this doesn't look like uh, a big problem, at least these days uh, in, uh, in developed countries. Uh, within a monetary union, uh, the story is different because within a monetary union, uh, you have two sides. On the one hand, uh, intervention by the central bank uh, in support of a distressed sovereign can be seized and somehow an unwarranted backing of some individual countries uh, that are uh, having problems uh, in their fiscal uh, policies uh, that maybe become unsustainable. But on the other hand, uh, you must also remember on the other side of the problem. If you are within a banking union and one of the countries is having a sovereign bank crisis, uh, this can create huge externalities to the other members of the banking union, forcing them to intervene uh, to avoid the crisis in that specific country. And we all know that this uh, can be creating some kinds of uh, moral hazard problems. Uh, what is needed in these cases? In these cases, you want to have swift decisions by the central bank uh, on possible interventions that can be done, pretty much as uh, uh, what happens in the case of a country that has uh, its own currency. But if you are within a monetary union, you also want to have a stronger mutualization of certain risks uh, because this helps to avoid uh, the externalities uh, that uh, I mentioned a moment ago. Actually, in the after, I had been told not to click too quickly, uh, but I have done it. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, this actually was not uh, the case uh, after the uh, great financial crisis. So after the great financial crisis, uh, we already had sown the seeds of what eventually became the sovereign debt crisis. And when was the sovereign debt crisis in the Eurozone tamed? It was tamed essentially when uh, these two steps uh, actually were taken. We had some risk-sharing mechanisms that were implemented, the ESFS, the ESM, some interventions in favor of Greece. 
and we had the interventions by the central bank. The central bank intervened as a, a lender of last resort with uh, long-term refinancing operations, especially the large long-term refinancing operations of uh, end of 2011 and, uh, and 2012. And uh, it also intervened as a potential buyer of last resort uh, with uh, uh, the famous speech by Draghi and uh, the outright uh, money transaction that never took place, place uh, but indeed uh, were there in case uh, uh, of need. Now we have quantitative easing, so we are even going one step ahead in terms of uh, uh, the activity of the central bank as a, as a buyer. Uh, how did banks react to this? Banks, especially in GIPS countries, uh, bought domestic government bonds. This helped them to restore their balance sheets, so to recover some profitability because they were, make, they were making carry trade profits. They had liquidity from the central bank uh, and they were using it to buy government bonds. Uh, that paid uh, uh, relatively well. Uh, at the same time, uh, it is true that uh, these kind of policies helped uh, to sustain uh, all the problems in the Eurozone and the possible uh, collapse uh, of the Eurozone itself. Uh, could banks have done something different at the time? Uh, if you think about it, uh, in terms of lending uh, to the private sector, that would have been difficult. It would have been difficult because uh, they had limited equity. And, uh, of course, lending to the private sector requires equity, uh, required capital provisions. Uh, and also, they were partly constrained on the liability side uh, because funding was not that easy. Uh, to be honest, if you watch what's happening now uh, in terms of uh, non-performing loans, uh, probably lending at the time too much to the private sector wouldn't have been, uh, in any case, uh, such a good choice. So our idea at the end of this analysis is that even with more stringent regulation on sovereign expositions at the time, the outcome that we would have had would have been probably worse than what we had without these more stringent regulations. Now, I said a moment ago that despite the fact that this is the situation in which we are, and I argued that we are in this situation because uh, we didn't have uh, the right mechanisms after the great financial crisis, and we had to intervene uh, in a certain way during the sovereign debt crisis. Uh, we are in this situation, but this situation is not uh, a situation that is sustainable, as I argued a moment ago, in normal conditions. So what we want to ask is, uh, what is uh, the optimal setting in normal conditions? The first thing to recognize is that in Europe, even in uh, what can be defined normal conditions, some asymmetries will still be present. And this requires, of course, uh, to put uh, ahead uh, policies that create incentives to account uh, for these asymmetries uh, and possibly to induce a reduction of these, uh, uh, of these asymmetries. And what I have in mind is some policies uh, that go in the direction of uh, uh, addressing the problem uh, also of uh, sovereign expositions by banks. But at the same time, uh, we want to have uh, these uh, risk-sharing mechanisms uh, taken uh, to completion. So we want to have uh, the completion of the monetary and banking union with all the different steps uh, that, this, uh, uh, that this require. To address the first issue, so to address the problem of uh, uh, the recognition of asymmetries uh, and uh, of uh, uh, creating the right incentives, uh, a number of measures have been proposed uh, that can be summarized into three main groups. The first one uh, is to set non-zero risk weights uh, on sovereign bonds uh, held by banks. The second one is uh, uh, to decide a partial or full lift of the exception to large exposure provision uh, for government uh, uh, bond held by banks. 
And the third one that, that we will not cover and we're not ha we haven't covered that much in the editorial is uh, to limit the use of sovereigns to comply with liquidity requirements uh, uh, for the uh, LCR and SFR. Uh, now, let's go a bit more into the details of these proposals. We have divided these proposals into two groups uh, uh, again. First, uh, we can think about horizontal discrimination. Horizontal discrimination uh, is something that requires full risk weights uh, and no exceptions to large exposure provisions, uh, as, for example, uh, suggested by the German Council of Economic Experts and uh, the paper by Andritsky that is uh, actually also in uh, uh, this issue of, uh, of European economy. And horizontal discrimination indeed has some good effects because uh, it limits the diabolic loop between banks and sovereigns because you are forcing uh, uh, banks not to have too many sovereigns, domestic sovereigns in their balance sheets. And also it creates incentives to reduce fiscal imbalances because it's gonna be a bit more difficult for these uh, sovereigns to issue their bonds. But at the same time, okay, it also has some less good one effects. For example, it is going to increase the costs of funding for weaker sovereigns. Now, if we go back to what I said a moment ago, that within the monetary union, you are gonna have huge externalities if one country has problems. Again, if you create problems to one country, this is gonna have bad effects for the, over, uh, for the entire union. In addition to that, there is a, a, uh, an aspect that is particularly relevant for the functioning of financial markets because uh, if you do horizontal discrimination, you reduce the amount of bonds uh, that can be used as risk-free assets. And we all know that risk-free assets are extremely important for the functioning of financial markets uh, in, uh, in general. In addition to these problems, uh, and this first set of problems uh, are problems that uh, would actually be there even uh, in, in the long run and in normal conditions, uh, we can have big problems if we wanted to introduce horizontal discrimination now in the transition period. We cannot claim that in Europe now we are in normal conditions. Uh, the banking sector has its own problems. Brexit is probably adding some additional problems. So we're not yet in normal conditions. So deciding now policies that might be good for the long run normal situation might be in any case a bad thing because we are not taking into consideration what needs to be done during the transition path. And in the transition period, if you do horizontal discrimination, you're gonna have risk weights, for example, that can hinder the recovery due to their positivicality effect, as Eric Nielsen argues very well in his piece in the European economy. And in addition to that, as Lanotten and a number of co-authors also argue in another piece in European economy, if you limit sovereign exposures, this can create a huge portfolio adjustment. And of course, if you have portfolio adjustments, this is gonna impact on, uh, on prices and yields, and therefore create again problems on, uh, on sovereigns. One thing that is very well stressed in the paper by, uh, by Lenotte and, uh, uh, and his co-authors is that uh, uh, you might have the impression that this impact uh, on prices is not uh, huge, but this is true. Uh, under certain very specific conditions, uh, but the impact is very non-linear. And it may be the case that the small initial shock can give rise to self-fulfilling speculative attacks uh, on some banks and sovereigns. And this, of course, uh, can create a systematic problem within, uh, within the union. Uh, indeed, uh, uh, in a recent speech, uh, Ignazio Visco said uh, that uh, probably 
the uh, cons of introducing horizontal discrimination are much larger than the pros of introducing horizontal discrimination at this very moment, uh, precisely for the reason that I mentioned before, that during the transition path, uh, we need to do something uh, else uh, than just introducing this uh, horizontal discrimination. Uh, an alternative, no, I need to go back, okay. An alternative, uh, vertical discrimination. Vertical discrimination uh, has been uh, uh, suggested by uh, a number of papers by Brunemeyer and a number of co-authors. Uh, uh, there is a nice presentation uh, uh, by Pagano in uh, our uh, issue of European economy. Also, Corsetti has uh, a proposal that uh, uh, partly uh, goes in the direction of vertical discrimination. What is the idea in this case? In this case, the idea is uh, to have a private-based financial entity that acquires a portfolio of bonds issued by all member countries of the euro area. So you buy all these bonds, uh, and the shares uh, in the portfolio are uh, uh, fixed uh, uh, on the basis of uh, some objective parameter, for example, uh, uh, the contribution to aggregate nominal GDP that is uh, uh, given by each, uh, uh, by each country. And then, uh, at second step, this financial entity issues asset-backed securities uh, using a tranching technique. We all know how tranching works. Uh, it's been very much used uh, uh, before the financial crisis. It is uh, still very much in use. Uh, what is good in this case uh, that is that even we do with two tranches and a very transparent mechanism of tranching, uh, you would have a senior tranche uh, that has a larger size uh, and better risk characteristics uh, than risk-free sovereign bonds, uh, than what now are considered as risk-free government bonds, so essentially the German, the Dutch, uh, and uh, uh, those issued by uh, Luxembourg. Uh, what is the impact of introducing these uh, uh, European safe bonds? Well, first of all, uh, at that point, banks would be holding, by construction, a diversified portfolio, because the portfolio will hold uh, uh, these asset-backed securities that by construction are backed uh, by a diversified portfolio of uh, government bonds issued by all different uh, um, member states. So at this point, the portfolio is diversified, uh, and therefore there is no need to impose concentration limits because uh, the portfolio is itself already diversified. Capital requirements uh, would not be binding uh, because, uh, as uh, I argued a moment ago, this senior tranche uh, is uh, essentially riskless, uh, you wouldn't have demand shortages for bonds in vulnerable countries, or this would be very unlikely, because uh, government bonds issued by vulnerable countries are actually bought by the financial entity up there, and they are part of the portfolio. But still, you would also have some incentive at the margin not to issue too many of these bonds uh, by weaker countries, because uh, you have the threshold uh, uh, on the composition of the portfolio. You would have a large pool of low-risk assets that, as I argued a moment ago, are essential for a well-functioning of financial markets. And in a transition period, you wouldn't have, have such a big change in what is offered and what is demanded in financial markets, and therefore, self-fulfilling crisis towards certain sovereigns and certain banks would be much less likely than what might be the case uh, uh, with horizontal discrimination. The only thing that uh, uh, we actually uh, stress in our editorial is that you want to have some caution in allocating the junior tranche, because uh, you don't want to have the junior tranche to be too much uh, uh, concentrated in the hands of just a subset of investors, because uh, otherwise this could create some systematic problems uh, uh, in financial markets. So. 
groups. Okay, wrapping up, uh, uh, we do have a problem. Uh, this is uh, just showing you the share of domestic sovereigns held by MFIs to total assets in stressed countries and in non-stressed countries. So we do have a problem, and the problem is not actually disappearing, and we need to address this problem. Now, we know that in economics, opening a new market typically increases welfare. SBS are a new market. It's a market that doesn't exist, and we can create this market. They shouldn't be considered just as an academic curiosity, but they should be considered as a viable policy option. This cannot go alone. This must go together with enhanced risk sharing and therefore the completion of the European Banking Union because the two things, as I argued at the beginning of my presentation, needs to go together. This is probably the reason why our next issue the fifth issue of uh, European economy is going to be on banks resolution and the mutualization of risk uh, in uh, the banking union. Thanks. Great. <clears throat> so, so the fifth issue is coming in one year? No. No, no, no. It's coming in uh, so you four have... months. Oh, wow. Okay, great. Okay. <laughs> I was just surprised that your one-year planning horizon is really great. Uh, anyway, Andrea, I think uh, now we turn to you, uh, then Eric, because you have two papers in the, in the booklet, uh, I mean in the, in the journal, um, and then we turn to our discussants, Mario and André. Okay, André. Thank you very much. Well, first of all, uh, I have to apologize because my paper is not in the booklet yet, so it's still being finalized, yes. but uh, it will be done uh, very, very soon. Uh, uh, let me also say that, in a sense, the EBA, this is not a topic on which the EBA is working, so what I'm saying here are my personal views and the views of my co-authors. So, but anyway, uh, this topic uh, has become very very, very uh, politically sensitive, almost ideological sometimes. So it's very, uh, so the way in which I try to approach it is to look back, uh, to start by looking back at the experience that we had at the EBA during the, uh, the sovereign debt crisis. And uh, what happened to us was that uh, um, while uh, the, 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 the Greek crisis basically started, while well, well, we were well into the first stress test exercise in 2011. And a problem became apparent because we uh, immediately noticed that, uh, let's say, the way in which uh, the banks in the sample of our stress test exercise were treating exposure to a sovereign risk was uh, all over the place. So basically we had uh, uh, half of the banks that had, uh, of course, uh, uh, used the standardized approach and so had a zero risk weight for sovereign uh, exposures. The other half was using internal models. And, uh, uh, well, uh, Disappointingly enough, uh, let's say the uh, risk parameters that uh, the banks were estimating were, uh, let's say, the, uh, uh, the, the, the lower, uh, the higher their exposure to that particular sovereign. So basically, all banks which had very small exposures have very high risk parameters and risk weights. Uh, banks with uh, very high exposures, on the contrary, have very low uh, risk parameters and almost clo and close to zero capital uh, impact of the of the of the stress. So, um, what we decided to do then was to uh, uh, I mean we tried to we scramble to extrapolate some uh, uh, capital charge based on uh, external ratings, basically on external ratings on on corporates. So we made some calculations and uh, and we came out with the magical figures and we said okay uh, for instance for 
for uh, Greece, we put a floor to provisions at uh, 16%, 17%, I think, if I remember well. Uh, which, by the way, was more or less the haircuts that was applied in the first uh, private sector involvement uh, a few months, uh, few months afterwards. Now, what happened is that when we published the uh, the results, basically this treatment was uh, completely ignored by market participants. All that m investors and market participants were looking for, wanted, was actually the mark-to-market of the sovereign exposures. Uh, the re a complete uh, reflection in their capital position of the uh, revised market valuations of, uh, of the sovereign exposures. So that was the, uh, the, the, the first point, and we had eventually to uh, correct our approach after a few weeks even, uh, requesting with uh, the recapitalization exercise that banks raise their capital ratio uh, by introducing a sovereign buffer that was reflecting the mark-to-market of sovereign exposures. And what is important, the mark-to-market of all sovereign exposures, irrespective of the accounting book where they were actually classified. So that's, that's the first point I, I wanted to make. Uh, then, uh, let's say, the, 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 there was at the time also some concern that this type of treatment would have been uh, pro-cyclical, so that it would have uh, induced a sell-off of uh, stress sovereigns and so uh, exacerbated the, the stress on the, on the sovereigns and that it would have uh, also uh, led to a, 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 a disordered leveraging, well, actually, that's not what happened. We actually saw, as you also uh, mentioned, that uh, uh, banks, especially in stressed countries, uh, loaded up domestic sovereigns, and, uh, and uh, the way in which uh, the recommendation was uh, framed meant that there was no uh, major uh, deleveraging, uh, deleveraging process. Now, if you uh, uh, fast forward to today, what you see is that uh, uh, that uh, recommendation has been, of course, uh, repealed. It was a one-off recommendation. Still, you don't have any, any specific treatment of, uh, of, uh, sovereign, of sovereign risk. And uh, you're still in a situation in which, uh, uh, let's say, uh, banks are charging either a zero risk rate or risk rates based on, on internal models, which are basically not delivering consistent and reliable results, which has led also the Basel Committee to recommend that uh, uh, the internal uh, ratings-based approach is uh, uh, dropped for, uh, for uh, sovereign, sovereign exposures. Uh, you also see a, a significant uh, concentration of, of, of uh, sovereign portfolios towards the domestic, uh, the domestic sovereign. Uh, we published the results of the transparency exercise uh, in, uh, in later last year, in, in 2015. And if I remember well, there were, out, out of the 105 banks that we had in the sample, uh, around 40 had basically a, a, an exposure towards their domestic sovereign that was uh, uh, more than twice their tier one capital, and I think that more than 10 had an exposure that was more than four times their tier one capital. So from a prudential point of view, this is not uh, a, a, a very desirable uh, situation because, of course, any, any shock on, on the sovereign will have an immediate, uh, I mean, uh, investors, market, market participants, analysts, rating agencies now know these exposures, and this will be immediately translated into a, 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 a revised assessment of the capital adequacy of the, of the banks. So in, in a nutshell, uh, the, the, uh, the other, maybe another point that I would uh, uh, 
pick up also from the transparency exercise that we published is that still now the banks are, let's say, slotting their exposures into uh, accounting books in a very different fashion. So you have uh, a, a number of banks which have the, ma the, the, the large majority of their sovereign exposures which are in banks, which are in books which are uh, measured at uh, amortized costs. So if you have a, a, a change in market prices, there is no impact on capital. And another uh, other set of banks which has instead a, a predominance uh, in their uh, of, of their uh, of their sovereign holdings in uh, uh, in books which are mark to market. So that's also an a, 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 an additional point. So uh, looking at this experience and this snapshot, in my view, let's say uh, uh, it is clear from our experience that sovereign risk has been a significant source of disruptions for banks and is now not adequately covered in the, in the regulatory framework, but that calibra calibrating a capital charge is very difficult because uh, uh, sovereign risk is, is lumpy, is a sort of white elephant type of, uh, of risk. So uh, uh, it's never there, but when it is there, it is particularly uh, significant. So uh, when actually you are under stress, any, any charge is not considered uh, sufficient. And uh, uh, although some home bias in the composition of sovereign portfolios is probably unavoidable, uh, the regulatory treatment should have some disincentives to excessive concentration. What we see now is, uh, is too much. And then there is this point of valuation. In our view, let's say, the, um, especially if you consider the liquidity requirements, according to which banks are to uh, hold a significant uh, uh, part of their assets as a liquidity uh, buffer in, uh, in, uh, in sovereigns, uh, there is an inconsistency in having uh, banks that should hold these assets be ready to sell them in front of a, of a liquidity shock and then have these assets which are in accounting books at amortized costs so that do not reflect market value. So we, in a nutshell, uh, if we were, let's say, if I were to, to, to make proposals on how to move forward, I would say that uh, we need probably to introduce uh, uh, positive uh, but small risk weights for uh, sovereign exposures to have requirements which are, in my view, should be not uh, uh, hardwired threshold, large exposure requirements, but rather risk weights that increase in concentration. So the higher the concentration of exposures, the higher the, the, the risk charge. And in my view, the moment where the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the charge should start getting higher is exactly around uh, the, the area where the liquidity coverage ratio requirements uh, start, uh, are, are calibrated. So for instance, if on average a bank has to keep 100% of its tier one capital into sovereign bonds to respect the liquidity coverage ratio, the higher charge for concentration risk to, should start only after that. I would introduce a requirement to hold in, uh, book, in accounting books which are mark to market a significant portion of the sovereign, of the sovereign, of the sovereign uh, exposures. And last but not least, I think that we should have uh, uh, a, a more uh, regular and structured disclosure. As you know, the, uh, at the EBA we have uh, started already in 2011 to disclose very granular information 
on sovereign exposures by accounting book, by countries, by maturities. Uh, but we do this uh, once a year and only for a sample of banks and without a very strong legal basis. I think it would be appropriate to uh, extend this type of, uh, of approach uh, and make it more, let's say, regular and mandatory uh, going forward. So these are the basic... Uh, Features, in a sense, if it, of course there is the, all the, the whole issue of the transition that you mentioned, uh, Alberto. In my view, let's say one should start from the easiest pieces. In my view, the, the easiest components are the multi-market, which would be very, uh, let's say, not very impactful now with the current low interest rates environment, and with the disclosure. So these two. Uh, pieces could be implemented already now, while on the introduction of, uh, let's say, uh, even low risk weights and uh, some concentration risk uh, uh, requirements, so we should take uh, a longer time frame, make uh, accurate impact assessment, and make sure that uh, whatever proposals are eventually implemented, uh, they do not uh, disrupt uh, either banks' balance sheets or sovereign debt markets. Thank you. Well, thanks a lot. Um, you apologized for not having the paper in the journal. Maybe I should apologize for having it, the paper in the journal <laughs> because it, I, uh, it was written. Uh, I had done a lot of thinking about it, but I never really put it together in a, in a note. So uh, what I try to do is to summarize what I'm actually trying to say in the paper. Um, uh, and I take a quite different view than from what you have heard so far. Um, let me first start by saying that, um, or remind you that, that the, um, the loop between banks and sovereigns uh, exists in every country in the world, also on local levels. And if Europe were to introduce risk weights, it's to my knowledge the first time in, ever that a sovereign has come out and said, I'm not really always credit worthy, ex ante. That's a, it's a big statement, right? I mean, just, just I'll come back to it in a second. It was not the, the, the loop between banks and sovereigns that caused the problem in the, in the crisis we went through, I would argue. Indeed, as you alerted to, it was probably that connection that saved us from an all-out all sovereign default setup. Sometime over those three hottest years uh, on BIS data, the, the core banks pulled over a trillion, with a T, euros out of the peripheral, uh, and had the local banks, the domestic banks, not increased theirs, I don't know how this would have ended. So uh, actually, I would argue in that period, it was a stabilizing, not a destabilizing factor. Um, so that's, uh, I think, it's, uh, just as a, as a way of introduction. Greece is a special case, I think, just say off front here. If Europe were to design its rules, all its ex-ante rules, on the basis of what happened in Greece, I think we're in a bad place. Uh, but I'll leave, just make that as a statement. That Greece is such an exceptional case that I think we should treat it as such. Um, now, uh, so let me, let me start by saying I'm, I'm definitely not, just to be very clear, I'm not against limits on bank exposure to sovereigns. I mean, it, uh, if somebody were to design a bank that only bought its own sovereign 100% of the balance sheet, of course, that's, that's silly. So I, I'm, I don't know exactly what le those levels would be, but I'll come back to a couple of examples of, of how one could do it. And, and as was mentioned, there are limits now, de facto. They're not institutionalized, but if you come and visit us at Unicredit, uh, the chances are that the first 10 people you will meet would be regulators from outside and not employees of the bank. 
So they are looking over the shoulder on every day, and, and every big exposure has to be cleared, right? So there are, but I, so I think there is something to be done in terms of ex ante set rules, but I'll come back to that at the end. But let me start by saying, I have fundamentally three key reasons why the, the, the limit should not be risk-based, but should be preset in some fashion or form. The first one is purely philosophical, and I sort of alerted to it. Uh, I think it is a massive move for a civilized society to ask the government to ex ante tell its citizens and investors that I am not always risk, uh, fully risk worthy. Put it up. I mean, sort of say it out there for We know sovereign defaults happen, and then you clean it up afterwards. But come out ahead and say, I am the guardian of, of a rule-based society we live in. But it comes to myself, you have to understand, that that could thing happen, and, and you have to accept that we, that we may not be able to pay up front. And maybe I, the government, I have legally bounding obligations. That's my bonds. Then I have politically, political obligations, such as pay pensioners and employees and others in the pay-as-you-go system. And I'm sort of saying, the ranking of this, I'm not so sure which one is going to be. What I think, we know that sometimes political changes happen, and, and, and it happens, but to institutionalize this up front, putting questions marks of the trust of the government, which is ultimately the mirror effect of society, I think is philosophically something one needs to think very carefully about. And I, and I would love to hear people who are cleverer in this space than I am to, uh, to, uh, to, to think through then explain to me how one has a trustworthy government that has institutionalized a risk weight on itself. There's a reason why now it's been kicked into the BIS that the Mexicans won't do it, the, the Japanese won't do it, the Americans won't do it, the Brits won't do it. Actually, actually, it's interesting, inside the Eurozone, nobody want to do it for themselves. The only one who actually really seems to support it are countries which are pretty damn sure their risk base is basically going to be zero or believe it's going to be that way. So nobody actually believes they will do it to themselves, right? So I think this is a, an issue. Um, now, I also want to say one more thing on this one, which, which was triggered by what, what you said, uh, is that should it then only be to the sovereign, because as a, to, the, to the central sovereign? Because as I said, the sovereign is ultimately the mirror effect of society, right? Uh, so should it not be to the sub-sovereigns? And just to throw at you, German banks' exposure to the German consolidated government, so all levels of government, is basically exactly the same as in France and as in Italy. And in most other countries, Spain is a little bit higher. So 10, 12% versus 16 or something. as a tier of GDP, right? So surely you cannot believe that a two or three German states would go under and not be bailed out, or somehow it has a consolidated effect, right? So, so what level of government are we actually going to talk about? And, and, and how do we think about this? Also, take another extreme example. Imagine now Italy, that everybody loves to beat up on. To take Italy, let's assume now that no Italian banks has a single BTP on its balance sheet. Not a single one. It's all gone. And let's say that we have all sold them to non-Italians. There's still sort of a third or something of, of the debt held by Italian other creditors. And the Italian sovereign word ought to restructure its debt. Do you really think that this will not sink the country into a massive recession? because of, of it impacts the balance sheet of the banks in every other aspect of it. So, it, so this idea that a sovereign is just another credit, 
and you can limit it and you can risk weight it, I think is misguided because it is, as I said, a mirror effect of, of, the, of the economy as a whole. And you can take that one out, but everything else on unit credit or in TSS, particularly in TSS, right, which is a domestic bank or any other bank's balance sheet reflects the Italian economy. And that will not do well in a sovereign default, regardless of what you have on your books. So that's sort of my sort of more philosophical sort of, of concern about it. Then the second one is what you already talked about, which is the issue, are we really going to experiment with a, an economy with no risk-free rate? Just purely, I mean, everything I learned in school is based in finance on risk-free rates. So we have no risk-free rate. Or are we just going to pretend that the bond is the risk-free rate and hope that we don't get a measurable representation one day of alternative für Deutschland in the, in the Bundestag that has sort of messes up policies and suddenly it become more risky or something like this? Or what is the risk-free rate? Or do we do a common security then that become the risk-free rate, de facto? So you move to, a, to a, the Eurobond sort of setup. That's a possibility. But without that, I would love to hear the finance community, the academic finance community, explain to me how I interpret the finance books I have read from, from my childhood, in a, a developed economy with no risk-free rate. And then the You third read finance books as a child? Yeah, I was so, so, <laughs> so struck of that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a lot older than you guys. So when I think about child, so, so when I think about my childhood, it's sort of my, my, my student days. Well, anyway, so. <laughs> I read Hans Christian Andersen. That was the same kind of voodoo stuff that, that we hear now, anyway. So, <laughs> and the third, and the third, <laughs> touche. And the and the and the third thing, the third concern I have is that if we can get over those two issues that I mentioned, the philosophical and the non-risk-free rate environment, is a very practical, the very practical one. How do you do it? And how do you, as you mentioned that I said in my paper, how do you make sure that it's not going to be pro-cyclical? When it will be pro-cyclical. For sure, right? Now, number one, using the credit rating agencies, I, I will just say I think it's completely mad. Uh, and, and, and I will afterwards explain to you why I think so. But the point I'm, I'm sort of making is that the credit agencies have no fantastic uh, history of predicting crises gradually along the way. If anything, they were, I think Portugal had 11 downgrades within an 18-month period, right? I mean, when the shit hits the fan, excuse my language. But it's like, so, so I, I mean, this is so pro-cyclical and so dangerous, I think. Then there's the market-based, and working for a bank, it's fantastically flattering that the market should somehow be the, the instrument. But it doesn't work. It's also pro-cyclical. And let me tell you what even is more, it's, it's worse here. If we in the market get nervous about the policies of Sweden, what is the first thing you see being sold? Or take the case of Britain. It's actually a much better example with Brexit. It's your currency. The first thing, when you get nervous about the country, politics, policies, economics, or whatever, you sell the currency. And while Brexit is a mess, at least you cannot deny that there will be some stimulus from a much weaker pound. So in spite of everything else, there will be some cushioning from the market reaction to the mess, right? Which is the currency. When the, in a currency union, what do you sell? You sell the sovereign. Or you sell the banks, as we see now, right? What does that mean? That means you tighten monetary conditions. And therefore, the market insists on policy reaction to a tightening of monetary conditions, which is further tightening. And there come your pro-cyclicality. When Monty came, it became prime minister and introduced the biggest fiscal 
adjustment in OECD history for a major country, at least. What did markets say? That was what they wanted. Then it did it, and the economy started to sink because of, of Economics 101. Say, oh my God, this country will never grow again, and the doom loop really started and only ended with Draghi's whatever it takes. So the market is not a good way of doing it. And you, we can go through the other examples that's been given to, to, to the, in the literature of how you do it practically. I have not found any of them that is not strongly pro-cyclical. And that is, is, cannot be a very clever way of doing things. So let me just finally say, uh, what else? I think there's a, the, number one, if you, wanna, if you wanna break that loop between the, the banks and the sovereigns, point number one is to encourage, maybe even with financial means, diversification across countries. Geographical or, or, or uh, distribution across countries and, and, and with businesses and, and everything else, not only the portfolio on the, on the sovereign bonds, but in your, in your overall business, because ultimately, as I said, the sovereign bonds will be a reflection of the local private economy. So if you encourage cross-country banking in the real sense of the word, that is definitely one way. Then Peter Pret has suggested a move to a to a European registration. I haven't thought this carefully through, but I think that's also a very interesting idea uh, that could, could be possibly helpful. And then finally, I, I think if you, you, as I said, you can cap it as a, you can do the, the sovereign as a, as a, as a percentage, set, preset percentage of, of capital equity, whatever you want, and you can grade it if you have different ones. Although, how about correlations? I mean, if I own a lot of BTPs, I'm, as a Unicred, I'm told I can't hold so many BTPs, so I buy Spanish bonds. Is that safer? Chances are they're pretty correlated, right? So, I mean, but you can, one can work this out in some, some sort of a, of a clever way. Or you can do, as, a, as I think would be more appropriate, to have the exposure to, to the consolidated government as a share of GDP, for example. Uh, but, but just sort of, I mean, this, this is not definite proposals, but, but ideas to put it in, in order to say there are ways of doing this which are a heck of a lot cleverer, I think, than the risk weighting, which I, I find both philosophically but also practically very troublesome. Okay, Mario, I think up to you. Thank you very much. Um, I think I will make three sets of, uh, of remarks being a uh, a discussant. One, some preliminary remarks, then take in turn a few of the points made by Andrea and Eric, and then maybe try to conclude on few things we know about this debate. The starting point is that we know very little. The other starting point is that, as uh, Alberto showed very clearly in a slide, down, no? uh, in the penultimate slide, the treatment of sovereign bond did not change for the last 20 years. Let us be clear. What it changed is the uh, ownership of sovereign bonds by the banks during the crisis. So in the period, let's say, that goes till 2009, we did not have this problem. We did not have this problem very simply because banks found good to diversify away from their own national country. That was a natural and obvious reaction to the setting up, here is the slide, to the setting up of the, of the single market. So the market was doing its own job. All countries moved away from their own, uh, from their own sovereign. Then the crisis uh, hits and countries and banks basically had to, uh, banks basically had to, as Eric was saying, more or less come to the rescue 
and, uh, and by, the, uh, by the bond. So the problem of the bank sovereign link or loop is a problem that has much more to do with the crisis than has to do with the uh, regulatory treatment. Incidentally, I noticed, and uh, uh, this goes to Giorgio and Alberto, that you are not very careful editors, because I was part of the Callesen group, and in the Callesen group, as you know, just published the report, every time someone was saying sentences like privileged treatment for sovereign bonds, it was completely killed. I mean, there's not such a thing as a privileged treatment for sovereign bonds. There could be a specific treatment for sovereign bonds, but before proving that it's privileged, you need to prove that there is a distinction between the risk it entails and the risk that is assigned. Things that is far from being proved, far from being proved. So I think uh, for, the, for the good, uh, uh, and I say it because we are among friends, but I think that for the good, uh, uh, quality is important that sentences like uh, privileges for bank sovereign exposures do not find uh, citizenship in a good uh, edition. At least in the Callesen report, uh, we eliminated them uh, completely. You have to go through the 94 pages and you'll not find one. Okay, but that's point number, that's point number one. Uh, the, the loop is, uh, is not linked to the regulatory treatment, being specific or not, is linked to something else. The second point is that if you have a loop between two things that are, uh, and, and you consider that there is a, a risk by that loop, what you can try to do is to put the two things both safe. And that's exactly what we have been doing in the last few years. I mean, on the sovereign side, uh, you know, all the measures that have been taken, uh, the, the criteria, the six, uh, the six pack, the two packs, and so on and on. And on the banking side, of course, CRR, CRD, BRRD, SSM, SRM, SRB, and, uh, and all the alike. So I would say there is a problem of a loop between two entities. The two entities have been made safer. So here it comes the moment where you say, okay, this is certainly, uh, it has been tackled in some respect. Is there something else that is needed? And here comes, uh, if I would like to be provocative, for example, I could say, well, yes, we could make uh, the banking union safer, and what is needed to, bank in the, to make the banking union safer, take the five precedent reports, and, uh, uh, for example, EDIS. And that is the uh, European Deposit Insurance Scheme, which I put forward, again, we are among economists discussing, I put forward that it has got no economic link with the regulatory treatment of sovereign exposures. Unfortunately, it has got a political link. I'm old enough to have been around and, uh, and having seen what it goes around. But this is a, it has exactly the same intellectual, intellectual dignity of when you do budgetary negotiations and you link cows in Netherlands with, uh, I don't know, aid to fisheries in Greece. It's exactly the same intellectual, it's exactly the same level of intellectual dignity. Of course, politically it works extremely well, but intellectually from among economists, it does not. And I think it's important to recognize this, even if I haven't read a philosophy book in my childhood, but I think that <laughs> principles and, uh, and philosophy are, uh, are, important to be, are important to be recognized. Second point, uh, uh, and this is very, very similar to, to the point that Eric just made, and I think we need to take it a step forward. Is, uh, uh, at 18, not in the childhood, we have all learned the capital asset pricing model, right? 
And we have all learned that the capital asset pricing model is there for increasing market efficiency. And we know that the fundamental aspect of that is the zero risk weight. Now, if we are discussing about not having a zero risk free rate, unless we are kamikaze, before doing that, before doing that, we should have another zero risk free rate, right? So that's why I find very good uh, in, your, uh, uh, in your review, uh, Giorgio and Alberto, that uh, you have a full chapter on SBs. I mean, this is a little bit like uh, if you want to play with the electricity, the first thing you do is that first you switch off the grid and make sure you don't take the, the, uh, you don't take the, the tension shock uh, when it comes. So if you want to play with moving away from uh, the, the, the existing zero risk weight for whatever reason, and we'll investigate in a moment, you need to make sure that you have before a reasonable alternative, otherwise, uh, otherwise it's very, otherwise it's very, uh, it's very difficult. Having said all of this, but I don't want to go into that, let us make clear that if you read carefully the SB's proposal, the SB's proposal does not create risk weight for sovereign in some cases when, let's say, the vertical diversification works well, but in the other cases it does. So it's clearly something which is superior to the current uh, zero risk weight because it gives a even further, an even further degree of, uh, of security, but it can, also, it can also eliminate that. So that is the, uh, the second point I, I wanted to make. On the risk weight, frankly, I think uh, the the arguments that, uh, that Eric has made on the, on the philosophical impossibility, again, among economists, I think they have complete citizenship. So uh, then uh, politically, the things may be different and so on and on, but here I think Bruegel is still a, very much an economics uh, think tank. So uh, among economists, honestly, that someone says, uh, you know what, I am a sovereign, but I'm not completely safe, I don't square the two things, frankly. Either you have fiscal capacity or you don't. If you have it, you are safe. If you don't, get lost, and then you are not a sovereign. You are any creditor whatsoever. And uh, if you are not safe, that's the interesting thing. If, you, if a state is not safe, the credit, the, the fact that it's not safe as a creditor is virtually dwarfed by all the other things for which it's not safe. If a state is not safe, it means that it cannot provide roads, streets, hospitals, education, whatever. So the fact that it doesn't pay back the debts is irrelevant. What is relevant is that you cannot do business there. That's the point. That's what I have called in another context with Guntram, what I call the total factor productivity aspect. That's what is interesting. Look at the total factor productivity, not only at the credit rate. That is an extremely... Uh, is an extremely uh, small thing to look at, uh, which I don't deny it exists, but, but it's very small. And then there is the issue of the, of the large exposure. If we say, okay, risk weight is not good, we look at the, at the large exposures. Well, yes, uh, but the large exposures do not cover again against this TFP risk very clearly. They do not cover against the, the, the indirect risk, obviously. Uh, they may cover against some credit risk, which, as I said, is minor in case, of, uh, in case of disaster. And equally, the large exposures, if you want, are an imperfect, or not an imperfect, a, a stopped too early attempt to create SBs, basically. So 
it makes just more sense to do the last step and go to the SB's, uh, and go to the SB's creation. So having said all of this about risk weight and large exposures, of course, what, what happens typically is that if you have two ideas, none of the which is convincing, then you say, hey, that's great, then we do a mixture of the two. And that, uh, I mean, again, philosophically, it takes me a while to, to understand it. Um, we'll see what it, uh, what it comes. I think the crucial point here is, and, uh, and I hope, Guntram, you, you appreciate that being a commission official, I praise the council a lot, and Guntram has been in the, in the council, in the Brussels bubble enough to appreciate uh, how difficult it is. But I think here the council really got it right. I mean, if you take the council conclusion of the uh, 15, 17, whenever it was of, uh, of last month, of June, 17 of June, I believe, what they say, they say on uh, sovereign, that is a global issue, and therefore we discuss it in Basel. It makes absolute sense. I mean, I have had the honor of representing the commission in the Basel Committee since 2009. And uh, I always insurged when the Basel Committee was discussing absolute minor things like lending to SMEs or real estate, which is the most local thing one can imagine. Here we have got a thing which is absolutely global, which is the, the sovereign bonds. I mean, we buy sovereign bonds from all over the world. So it's absolutely right that this discussion is taken where it belongs, which is, which is, the, uh, which is the Basel level. And that's why I believe in that. It also allows very much to um, to account for the uh, period in which, uh, uh, in which we are. Incidentally, in Basel, there is also the irony that, as Andrea was uh, rightly recalling, uh, Basel has decided to drop the IRR treatment for sovereign, or we may, would uh, suggest, whatever. And obviously, this is a treatment that gave some uh, gave some uh, risk weight, and, uh, and if you go back to the standardized, it does not. But it's just an irony. But I think the crucial point that we need to bring home is that this is a global market and global needs to be, uh, and global needs to be taken. And then from there, how do you move? I'll venture uh, three areas where I think uh, from this debate, which is now more than a year long, uh, we, can, uh, uh, we can more or less find an agreement. The first area where we can more or less find an agreement is the area, and, and on that Basel was very clear, and I think also the Council can be read in that direction, is the area of the hard limit. Uh, large exposures maybe, but hard limit, uh, no thank you. And uh, there the counterfactual is phenomenal. I mean, had you had large limits there, explain me what would have happened. Hmm? Unless you take a, a sort of an, a, an uber economical view, which uh, if we had had hard limits, countries would have lost market access, and by losing market access, they would have made reform better. But okay, this, I think, is a, a little bit a too rational view, which I, would leave it, uh, which I would leave it elsewhere. But I think there is a general, a general agreement on avoiding uh, hard limit. Another point where I think is worth to, to, to reflect and bring forward is the famous, uh, is, is this a global issue or is this uh, a, a European uh, Union or even worse, a Euro area issue? As I said, 
the Council, I think, went for the right approach, which is the global issue. Um, Alberto gave all sorts of good reasons why, why it's not uh, a euro area issue only, and I agree with all of that. I haven't seen many central banks, uh, non-euro, at the moment of difficulties printing money, okay, no? Callesen doesn't spend his time printing money, so this idea that uh, if you are in the euro you cannot print money, but if you are outside you could, I mean, is to say the least irrespectful of, uh, of the non-euro area countries. But I think the litmus test and the very crucial point is another one, is uh, look at the level of deficit and debt at which countries lost market access. I mean, in the euro area, countries kept market access, a level of deficit and debt that outside the euro area, they would not even go to the grocery store, let alone selling bonds. I mean, it's, it's complete, it's complete. So claiming that this is an issue of euro, non-euro, is complete against the market evidence. And then the last point, I think is the one that Andrea made very clearly, which I call, uh, in internal debate, I call uh, rule neutrality. But basically what I mean is that uh, is, is an old, uh, is an old uh, question of, uh, of justice uh, going back to the Roman times is no bis in idem. If there is a legislation that tells you you need to hold the sovereign bonds, there cannot be another legislation who says, uh, please do it, and by the way, I tax you. So this really cannot work. So there must be some rule neutrality. Thank you very much. Okay, thank, thank you, André. Being the, the last on the, uh, on the panel has um, many advantages, but it has also <laughs> some disadvantages. And one of the disadvantages is that I'm going to have to disagree with uh, my friend, uh, Mario Nava. Now, let me, let, let, let me go back to um, history. Uh, when, I, when I was an economic advisor uh, to the uh, director general of, uh, of ECFIN in the 1990s, in the second part of the 1990s, before uh, the start of the monetary union in, uh, in 99, I suggested to the director general that uh, ECFIN economists um, should uh, reflect as a group and together with uh, economists uh, and famous economists, uh, academic economists, should reflect on how uh, the monetary union would work now that we were uh, on the eve uh, of launching the monetary union. And uh, we launched work, I think if I recall, uh, Massimo Suardi was here uh, was involved, was one of the many economists in, in ECFIN who was involved in this work. And uh, this work resulted in a, uh, in a book published by, uh, Mario, uh, by uh, Marco Butti uh, and myself uh, at Oxford University Press in 98 called uh, Economic Policy in EMU. And what this book was meant to be about was, in a sense, uh, a guide for policymakers on how policy making would be in EMU. Going from macro issues, fiscal policy, monetary policy, structural issue. One uh, notion that you will not find in the book, not because there was censorship, 
um, which there was not, uh, but because nobody raised it. Uh, neither the uh, academic economists nor the dozens uh, of economists from within ECFIN uh, who contributed to, to the project this sovereign debt uh, crisis. You will not find a single line on sovereign debt crisis. By the way, you will not find much about financial crisis. Now, I take full responsibility for this, but I think that in 2016, uh, I think we have to open our eyes. Uh, we have had a, a major financial crisis, uh, and I take the financial crisis as having started not in 2010, but in, 20, in 2007, 2008, and whatever the origin, it's the US, whatever the origin of the financial crisis, doesn't matter. I mean, we know that financial crisis can happen. What is the important element is how one deals with the financial crisis. And the fact of the matter was that we, in the euro area, uh, were very ill-equipped to deal uh, with a financial crisis. And uh, we learned that lesson. We learned that lesson painfully. And uh, the lesson translates into a banking union. Okay? And we know that we haven't yet incomplete banking union, but at least the blueprint and the elements of the banking union has been put forward. The Commission has played uh, a very important role, and, and Mario Nava uh, played certainly a, a very, very crucial role in this exercise. And you know, one has discussed the supervision, the resolution, and hopefully at one stage the, um, the deposit insurance. So I think that's clearly a point. You know, we were naked, and uh, we have learned the lesson and the lesson is to create the banking union. Now, I think we have also to admit another issue, which is that there's not been in any developed economy since, let's say, the 1950s, a, a sovereign debt uh, crisis as there was in Greece. Greece is the first instance of a developed economy to have a sovereign debt crisis. Now, a sovereign debt crisis like uh, Argentina had, like uh, Russia had, like a number of emerging uh, countries. Now, I think we have to, to reflect on that. We had a sovereign debt restructuring in the case, uh, in the case of Greece. Now, to refuse to see that there is a link between what happened in Greece and the belonging to the monetary union, I think that uh, is not accepting to draw the lesson. Now, I think one can, obviously, and I think one should, uh, and I think this, it seems to me, uh, should be the, uh, the gist of, of, the, of the debate that we are having today. We should, it seems to me, agree that there was there is, I mean, one, there one can discuss a little bit uh, whether there was or there still is, but there definitely was a uh, flaw in the construction uh, of the monetary union that created the possibility of having a sovereign debt crisis, and that, that possibility did materialize in the case uh, of Greece. I think that we have to recognize that there was something in the design of the monetary union 
that created that possibility and that that possibility materialized. Now, if we don't agree on this, it seems to me, uh, we are not going to make uh, progress. Where we should disagree, uh, and I think that's, uh, that's a perfectly legitimate uh, disagreement uh, among economists, is how to solve that problem. And how to solve that problem, not just in the ideal world, but in the real world. That is in the real world also of political constraints. So I think, we, as economists, uh, one should put forward the first best solution. We are economists. There is a problem. There was a flaw. What is the uh, solution to the problem? A solution to the problem of the monetary union, not a global problem. I disagree. Problem with the monetary union. And what is the solution uh, that one should put forward? Or what is the range uh, of solutions, and then after that one can discuss in a second round uh, what are the political constraints and which among those solutions, maybe the first best solution, maybe there's one first best solution, that first best solution that economists could agree upon is not feasible, but I think economists obviously have the responsibility to argue for the first best solution. And then uh, if uh, the uh, politicians tell, tell us that this first best solution, for whatever reason, uh, they don't want to go to it, I think we should complain that uh, they are not building, therefore, uh, what, should be, uh, what should be a, uh, a robust monetary union. But then I think we can tell them, OK, if you are putting this constraint, then this is the second best uh, solution. No. Uh, so it seems to me that's the, the first question. It seems to me that this panel is to agree, because I see that there is disagreement uh, on the panel as to whether or not the monetary union itself, and in a sense, this, this was the, the starting point uh, of the presentation of Giorgio and of Alberto, but this was not the point where, in a sense, both Eric and Mario uh, reached. So yeah. they started in one, which was there is a specificity of the euro area in this, in this domain. Uh, uh, what I heard at the end uh, from Eric with the philosophical discussion, I mean, what you call the philosophical discussion that Mario also took, uh, which is to say, no, 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 states in the euro area, they are like states outside of the euro area. Seems to me a very strange concept, a very, very strange concept. Seems to me personally a very dangerous concept, which is the concept that has led us to this crisis. This was the lesson that I had not learned before. So say I take, I, I just take, I just, let me just finish. So I, let, let, let me just, uh, let, let me just uh, uh, argue my point. So I take my full responsibility for uh, having done mistakes. Uh, and the responsibility, which I think today, as, as I look back, we knew what were number of flows, frankly, right? We, the economists, we knew what were a number of flows of the monetary union. What we did hope on on the other hand, and you know, with different degrees and you know, whatever our skepticism was. But I think those of us who were working on this and who could see some of the problems, but at the same time believed that there were a number of benefits from the monetary union, uh, which clearly th there are, there were and there are, we were hoping that those flows that were there, they were going to be addressed. And I think the major issue 
uh, that one had to accept and that was not sufficiently accept was that it was a huge change of regime. That states before and states after, they could not behave in the same manner. I'm not talking of, of the sovereign debt only. I'm talking in general. They could not behave in the same manner. Be continuing to behave in the same manner while they had lost the monetary authority, I think, is what led to, 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 to the crisis. So I'm, I'm, I'm a bit surprised to hear, well, you know, states uh, in the monetary union, it's like states, uh, like states anywhere. No, it is not the case. And I think all the reforms that we need to go forward are precisely reforms that need to be underpinned by accepting that this is a change of regime. No, if you tell me that the solution to the problem is um, eurobonds, okay? That certainly we cannot have a situation where there is no uh, safe asset. I would never recommend to uh, any uh, system, monetary union or else, uh, not to have a safe asset. Uh, I agree that this, this is suicidal and you know, it, it's destabilizing the entire system. So if you are telling me that you know, we cannot live in this world, I fully agree with that. But if you are telling me that the state inside the monetary union is as stable as the state outside, I'm sorry, I, I, don't, I, I don't disagree with that. I do not, dis I, I cannot agree with that. I cannot agree with that painfully. Not that I love to say that. Uh, I, uh, I have opened my eyes from the crisis and I've seen what I have seen. So one cannot just sort of, you know, wishful, wishful thinking. Wishful thinking is very nice, but not after the, the crisis that we have gone through and where we, are, uh, where we are today. So it seems to me that that is the fundamental issue. After that, if we, if, if we agree on that, then I think we can discuss uh, all of those solutions. First best solution, uh, second best solution, uh, and among the second best solution, which is the, the better one, are there several ones? What are the advantages of one? What are the disadvantages of the other? Uh, certainly, I think we should. But I think it has to be predicated, it seems to me, on the fact that a state cannot behave uh, in the same manner as before. Now, I mean, it took me, my friend Paul de Gaulle, uh, to understand that uh, when uh, we realized, I think, in the midst of the, uh, of the crisis, in the midst of this uh, terrible loop between the, the banks uh, and the, uh, the sovereign in, in 2011, uh, 2012, that indeed, uh, Euro area countries, uh, they issue debt in a currency that they did not fully control. No, we are not indeed a situation like, like uh, Argentina. The difference between us and Argentina is that, yes, it's true that Italy uh, does not have control over a central bank. Okay? So the Italian state, when faced with uh, great difficulty, if it were the case to be faced with great difficulty with its sovereign debt, it cannot do what the Bank of England would do for, uh, for, for, the, for, for the British Treasury, which is to issue uh, whatever money it takes to be able to reimburse the debt. Obviously, the Italian state cannot do that. But at the same time, it is not in the same situation as Argentina. When Argentina was short of dollars, well, it was short of dollars, and there was nothing to do. It could not uh, tell the Federal Reserve to do something. 
Luckily, Italy, or any other country, uh, does belong to a monetary union, and there is a central bank. So even though the central bank is not controlled by Italy, there is a responsible monetary authority that can act. And indeed, uh, the OMT, uh, which was not used, was a fundamental uh, change in, in the game here. When Mario Draghi announced that there would be unlimited intervention, but conditional, this whole thing is conditional, obviously it changed the, the, it, it changed the game. So it showed that we are not in as exposed a situation as Argentina. We are in this in-between situation. Uh, we are not in a situation like the UK, or like Japan, or like the United States, but we are not in the same situation as Argentina, or Brazil, or another that issued debt in a foreign currency, typically in dollar, for which when there is a crisis, <laughs> there is a crisis and there is a default. Nonetheless, Greece had to default. Greece had to default, as I said, the first industrial countries in more than 50 years that default. No, if you, don't, if you don't accept that the default of Greece is linked to its participation in the monetary union, and that at that time we did not have the tools in place, or I would say even the intellectual uh, ability to reflect the problem properly, and that it took some time that we needed to have the Irish problem, it took to have the, uh, the Portuguese problem, and then the problem started to spread, uh, obviously, to, to Spain that had the problem, and then we came to, the, to 2011, 2012, when it spread also to Italy. Then it started to, uh, to be so urgent that obviously one had to come to realization of what is the nature of the monetary union and what is lacking. But what was the, this realization is that the states in the monetary union are more exposed than states outside. And that some mechanism needs to be found. Again, I say we can discuss the, the, the mechanism. But I, I, I mean, I, I really think that we, we need to, to, to have this discussion uh, among the, uh, the panel members and among everybody that whether or not we agree on that, say if, we, if we don't agree on that, I don't think we are, we are going to find the, uh, the, the solution. And I'm not saying, you have not heard me say that uh, I've talked about regulatory uh, issues, about uh, exposure or uh, about uh, risk weights. I've not even pronounced that. I've not, talked, I've not gone that way. I think that is one of the possibilities. But as I say, one has to correct this fundamental weakness, I believe. Okay. Thank, thank you, André, for the passionate intervention. Um, so, so um, I mean, before perhaps opening the floor and also giving, uh, giving uh, Mario and, and Eric, I think, also a quick, quick chance to react, let me add just two, three remarks. I, I mean, I, I, I think the first point I want to make is that and it's very much along the line of, of what André said. We have, we have fixed the fundamental problem um, of being in between England and, and Argentina by agreeing on an institutional framework which is centered around the ESM and the OMT. Now, what is the main feature of the ESM and the OMT? The ESM has to agree on a program before we can activate OMT. Now, on what conditions can you agree on an ESM program? Well, on the condition that you have a debt sustainability assessment that tells you that debt is sustainable. Now, we all know that this is 
theoretically easily done, in practice very difficult, and that there's a gray area, and so on. But I think we can, at least among economists here, agree that there are cases in which debt is just not sustainable. Even at a very, very low interest rate, it will not be sustainable, and you will force the country, if you pretend that this debt is sustainable, you will force the country into um, uh, um, into um, self-fulfilling uh, downward spiral, uh, and our austerity will, will reinforce um, the downward spi spiral even further. And that's very much the story of Greece, at least to some extent. You have, you've had an, a program which was pretending that the country is sustainable, but the country was not sustainable. And I, I don't want to go into this direction ever again, because you know I think it's going to be extremely painful. And if we talk about a country, uh, a, a bigger country, um, you know the, the fallout is is totally totally unmanageable. So I, I do think we have to start from the institutional response that we have had to this problem, which is ESM program combined with OMT. OMT and OMT can only be activated if there's a unanimous decision that the country is sustainable based on debt sustainability assessment. Now. That means there could be instances when debt is not sustainable, and then we have to talk about what to do with with a debt overhang, and uh, and you know that that is that is where the whole debate about um, you know how to deal with this debt overhang becomes really relevant, and and there I have to say I'm a little bit more on the side on the side of Eric. I mean I I, I think I mean if debt is unsustainable. Um, and we want to do some, let's say, so soft form of restructuring, for example, extending maturities by two or three years um, at the beginning of the program, so to give the program more time, uh, a smaller program, uh, and, and make sure that, um, uh, you know, basically um, you see whether the medicine works, and if it doesn't work, you, you still have, um, uh, have some private creditors left. So if you want to go for that option um, uh, of, of, soft, of, of soft debt restructuring, you, you, it has to be credible. And it's not credible if you have a financial system where you know, basically all the debt is held only in a few banks in just the one country. And so there, I, I, I'm, I'm very much with, with Eric that uh, we need some form of... Uh, of uh, uh, limits, um, which you know, then then it gets very philosophical. What kind of limits? But you know, if if you do not get some form of limits, uh, you will. It's just not credible to do the debt restructuring. And then you know, basically the ESM OMT solution is a non-credible solution. And then basically the foundation of uh, uh, the solution that we found to our problem being between England and and Argentina is not 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 working anymore. And so I think then we are basically kicking the can down the road. Um, so, so so I think this this issue needs to be addressed. And and perhaps then uh, my 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 last point um, is is on this issue, you know, between horizontal and vertical. Yeah. And uh, and you know the vert so the vertical idea is essentially to split that into a junior and a, and a senior tranche, and you say the senior tranche we call that a safe asset and the junior tranche we call it a non-safe asset, or less safe asset, and then you at least you, you you maintain that safe asset. And I actually have a lot of sympathy for this. I think you can actually do this on a country by country level, so every country um, can. Uh, can split its own debt into a more junior and a more senior tranche. 
um, and uh, and thereby maintain uh, maintain the um, and you know the average interest you pay then is the same. I mean it's just the splitting of of, of the same bond basically into two, um, and then at least you sort of keep one part of, of the of the debt that is really risk free, which is the more senior tranche. And so I think that that would be one way of one way of doing it. Um, there's other ways of doing it. I personally think the SB solution, um, and we can discuss that further. I think it, uh, it's too complicated. I, I think people will not understand it in the political system. I think it will, it will ultimately not, not fly because of that. Um, and, uh, and people will just, you know, just reject it because of, because of its complication. And, and also because, frankly, I think if you, uh, if I may be uh, quite, quite direct here, I mean, if, 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 if you tell this to, uh, to a member of, of, the, of the Bundestag, uh, in German Parliament, you know that then you have to junior, junior and senior. That's already difficult. But then you have the senior. Then you pool the risk of the senior across, or you, at least you you put them all in one basket. I think it's just politically, it's it's very difficult to put that through, which is why I think you can do it actually country by country, splitting the junior and the senior, um, and then combining it with what Eric uh, calls, you know, essentially getting banks um, becoming more European banks with a broader exposure across across different countries, I think then you, you get a system that is, that is um, fairly stable. And just, just to say, I mean, um, uh, perhaps my last point, very last point um, uh, also to Mario, I mean, um, a sovereign default um, or a sovereign difficulty, difficulties in, this, in the sovereign, Mario, I don't think means that everything goes under. I mean, uh, what sovereigns do is they prioritize creditors and that they do systematically. Um, and uh, they continue to pay the school teacher, but do not pay um, sort of the most senior, uh, the, the most junior uh, of, of their creditors. So, so I do think there is sort of a gray zone there where, um, uh, um, you know, I think not the entire country in all its dimensions goes under. Um, uh, if if you, if you do it uh, if you do it in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a smart way, but again, I think the starting point needs to be the starting point of where we are currently, and we have an, an, a political and a legal agreement on an ESM treaty together with an OMT program, um, and and that uh, and by the way, the OMT program is also now legally uh, waterproof, fortunately, and I, I think it's very good that. Uh, the Bundes, uh, the German Constitutional Court and the ECJ were very clear that this is perfectly legal, also in line with, with German constitutional law. I think this is a very important political step um, and a legal step. Um, but, you know, then we have to take this agreement seriously and avoid that we end up in, in an inconsistency in case something is really insolvent. Okay, I'll give you the floor, uh, Mario and, and Eric, if you want to react to anything, and then um, I open up. Thanks. I, I'll, I'll be very brief. Um, so I, uh, let, me, let me start with one comment on what you said, Gunther, uh, which I share a, a, a big part of or, or, or agree with a lot. It's, there is not a sovereign restructuring that is orderly. There's just, I mean, that is a, it can be more or less painful. I don't think there's a single case of anybody restructured debt and still kept their obligation of paying school teachers or pensioners 
the run-up arrears. In every case, there's been run-up arrears, and, and sort of governance societies start to erode in some ways. And that's, but of course, as you said, if the data is unsustainable, then it's unsustainable, right? Unless you can turn it around and, and, and something has to be done. So, so it is, it's incredibly difficult, uh, but, I, but we are fooling ourselves if you think that we can sort of fiddle a little bit with some risk weights and stuff, <laughs> a couple of other things, and then suddenly we can just damn fix these countries when they get too much debt. So I think, so that's, that's the, Andre, I, we need to talk more frequently because last time I talked to you, you were, you, I think you said something very different. So you, you become very pessimistic. Uh, <laughs> but, but let me try to uh, reflect a little bit. Let me say, I mean, just reflect on two things you said, which I disagree with. The first thing is, if I understood you correctly, you, you sort of made a com comment about after we got EMU, governments start to behave in a different way. And that, of course, can't be. And it's, uh, I don't think they actually did, necessarily. I mean, it's, uh, if anything, the Irish and the Spanish done differently. Oh. And more prudently. Exactly. Yeah. They incorporated that they were in the monetary unions. Right. We were in the change of regime. So I just said right. I didn't say that they behave worse. I think they behaved in a manner not consistent with belonging to the monetary unions. Right. That's what I said. All right. There was not very many people who complained that the Spanish and the Irish budget surplus was not big enough. In retrospect, it probably wasn't big enough, but it but but uh, but there was a so it so so there were there are definitely flaws in the system. But I, but but I I I find it, and, and I certainly was not one who who flagged all the weaknesses when the thing were constructed. <laughs> I would be the last one to say that. But I find it I find it harsh to say that it's that sort of everybody went off on a, on a on the off the deep end. Greece did in a sense, and 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 I think this was my other point of this. I think it is a little bit rich to claim that it was the euro that sank Greece. I would argue that Greece was a or is a fundamentally flawed setup, and the euro probably accelerated an, an underlying problem uh, rather than the thing that caused it. Right? It, it 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 forced upon them something that that the world hadn't seen, and for a while they lied along the data and extended it a bit. So I think again, I. How many I, times did Greece? You please tell me. How many Greece? What what was the current account deficit of Greece in two thousand eight? Ten percent. Second or third quarter, I mean, no, 10% no. or whatever, right? Number. But you mean nearly 20%. Okay, 20, all okay. right. How many times before the monetary union did Greece have that? You tell me. Zero. Ab uh, zero, absolutely. Yeah. And so, the point is... And, so, and you think that th there's, no, there's no link to the monetary union, to what happened to the current account deficits? No, you, no, of course there was. This, this was sort of just a, by accident? No, no, no. It's for sure. The, the accumulation, but what has the, the, accum the, 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 on, the, the on, fact that on, Greece, hold on, hold Spain, on, hold Portugal have 100% uh, external debt. External yeah. debt, right? Right. This, this just happened. I mean, yeah. by the way, much more than in any of yeah. the emerging countries. Right, right. This happened just like that? And no link to the monetary union? No, no, I said, I said that it, it helped trigger it. My argument is, if you, counter, if you create a counterfactual where Greece has stayed outside, I am far from convinced that per capita income in common currency had been higher in Greece today than it is in this present. Distribution would have been different. No, no. I'm not talking about income. I'm talking, we are talking about sovereign debt. Yeah, yeah. Don't talk to me about income. Maybe income is much higher, but then a sovereign debt crisis. This is the topic of the discussion here, a sovereign debt crisis. Right, and that my point is that it was that was triggered 
by the, the euro helped trigger it, but it is not it didn't cause it per se. But let me finish the other point that I was gonna make. We can take this on. I think I, the other point I was gonna make is I, I think you cut it too sharp when you say that the Bank of England is a different regime and they can just print the money. I would argue, I would I would think that you don't see in any of the countries in the EU outside the Eurozone or in any other sort of, of market and, and civilized economy that central banks will step in and rescue a government that has gone off the deep end, if you will. So take an extreme example. I'm just making up for to illustrate here. Jer Jeremy Corbyn becomes prime minister of Britain with an absolute majority, and he sort of makes policies that along like with, with Syriza or something mad, right, or, or something that they wanted to do. What would the Bank of England do and say that the yields, yields move higher and people just like, would the Bank of England just step in and rescue him or would they say, well, we are independent and it would end with that Mark Carney is fired or pushed out and you basically change the law and make it subordinate. In that case, other things give and the pound, you have not seen the bottom of where the pound goes, right? That's my point. And in my book, the OMT became very, very close. It's not sort of a midpoint between your Argentina and Britain. It is awfully close to what you described as Britain, which is that if it is a, a speculative attack, it's quite easy to get your program and the ECB is behind you. But if you, are, if you have a, a mad policy set up, that is, everything will go. And it will also in Britain. And it will also in America, right? It is, so so I, I'm, I think that we have, on that side, a re reconstruction of the Eurozone, which is pretty close to okay. I mean, then there are other areas that we talked about, but, but we can talk about. So I think, I think it's a, um, um, you're sort of, of, of description of, of, of the flaws. We didn't, you didn't ever came to the, to the issue of, of, of what I thought we talked about, which was the risk weight. But, it, but on the, the overall construction, I think, I think you, are, you are identifying, you, you are, you're highlighting ex continuing deficiencies which are, which are not as big as the way you describe them. Very, very briefly. Now, there is one point on which I agree uh, fundamentally with André and one point where I, I keep my disagreement. The point on which I agree fundamentally is that that what André has been talking about, union or non-euro uh, area or non-euro area, that is the issue. And for having worked uh, in the Callesen group for a full year, I can tell you that writing that chapter was the most difficult one. At the end, there was even... One country with two people, one from the Treasury and the other from the DMO, that they taught differently, so even within one country. So that is the most difficult point. At the end, the group came down with a majority view more akin to what I represented, but there is clearly a minority on the other side. So that, I agree, is the biggest issue. Why I, I and, and I think we need to, to deepen it, but why do I still think differently from Andre, and why do I still think that we should not make a distinction euro, non-euro? I would take it in this way. First of all, um, the issue is not whether we are between Argentina and Britain, because the example of Argentina is, is not pertinent here, because the regulatory treatment uh, of zero risk weight is only when you issue in your own country. So Argentina issuing in dollars, doesn't get the zero risk weight, so it's out of the picture. So let's forget about that. Let's just focus on whether we are England or Argentina issuing in pesos, okay? Because that is the issue. 
Are we date or not? Let's take England because it's easier. Now, I would put forward two propositions. One is that irrespective of whether a country is part of the euro area or not, what matters for the risk of default is the sovereign fiscal discipline and sustainability of debt. That's what I would put forward. And therefore, I would say, irrespective of whether you are euro area or not, is your ability. Now, Andre, in response to Eric, made a very fair point, which is that because of the rigidity of the euro area, you had more difficulties to respect that. That's, I think, is a, a discussion that is worth having. But if you look only at, uh, at the, the sustainability of debt, that's very clear. Fiscal discipline and sustainability of debt should be independent from uh, whether you are in the euro area or not. And this debt one, debt delivers whether you can honor or not your, uh, your debt. But then the second point, which is the one that Per Callesen, for example, and many others always felt a little bit strange, is the hinting that the Bank of England, so to speak, can start printing money. I mean, I just remind that all the EU central banks are prohibited by the EU treaty to provide monetary financing. I mean, that's Article 123 of the treaty on the functioning of the European Union. So even the Bank of England, uh, it's today prohibited for providing monetary financing. So I don't think that that, that, that argument is, uh, is very strong. But I do recognize this is the central point we need to go around. But to me, it's not really the issue of uh, exposed. It's rather an issue of ex ante, meaning uh, is the euro area enough complete, uh, for example, with many things that the state has not to get to a situation where Greece is? That is a, a question. But it's a question that, therefore, is, it comes before the issue of bank sovereign. Then when you get to the issue of bank sovereign, it's different. Thank you. OK. Um, let me collect uh, three questions, and then uh, please address them to, to panelists, and then we have to close. Uh, I think we were speaking very long, I realize. I'm, I'm very sorry if it was uh, boring, but I think we had a good discussion. Please. Thank you, Andrea. What you said is uh, that I mean, uh, within the monetary union, uh, I mean, we have to recognize that there is a flow, and that I mean, uh, the countries didn't uh, behave differently from where they were outside. Fine. Well, not sufficiently. I mean, uh, okay, but even uh, admitting that, it seems to me the debate today was to change the microprudential approach of sovereign risk, which is a fundamental. I mean, linked to macro, of course, and with a lot of feedbacks on macro, but it's a micro. A micro discussion, micro prudential discussion within the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision. That's why I think Marco, Mario said it is a global, global issue that is being discussed there for various reasons. Now, uh, to address uh, the difficulties that you said, that requires a macro approach. So, are we correct? notwithstanding the benefits of, of course, diversifications, et cetera, which were hinted by various speakers, are we correct in trying to fix a macro problem, which is fiscal debt, sustainability, et cetera, with a micro instrument and a micro approach? Thank you.
I think we really probably uh, covered uh, all the various dimensions extensively, <laughs> or perhaps we're just entering the, <laughs> the six o'clock uh, deadline when just people want to. So, sorry for that. So, so, so let's, let's have a, a quick answer by, by Andre on that point, and then uh, Georgia Pips, you want to say um, uh, a few concluding remarks. Yeah. Oh, and, and Andrea, sorry, before, before you, Andrea. So I, th I think you, you, you raise a, a very fair, uh, a very fair question. Um, obviously, you, you load it a little bit by, by saying that it's a macro problem, and is the solution to the macro problem a micro problem, a regulatory? Okay. So, okay, you, you, you have, in a sense, a bit loaded it by describing the problem in a manner which is macro, okay? And there's no doubt that there is an important macro component. I mean, I cannot disagree with that, obviously. I mean, it would be, it would be, uh, it would be foolish. Um, and I think in order to, uh, to my mind, I mean, to try to answer that analytically, again, as an economist, not uh, uh, somebody looking at the, 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 the political constraint, I think I would uh, go back again to, to, the, to, the, to the contribution uh, that uh, Giorgio and Alberto put forward, which is the distinction between the long term, um, the steady state, and the transition. And I would tend to say that the longer term problem, that is the one where we abstract from where we are now, um, as an important, I mean, I don't want to get into, you know, as an important micro component. And therefore, the solution as an important regulatory component. I'll just say one word on this. While where we are now is a macro problem. And that using the micro solution now to deal with that is foolish. So, I'm personally in favor of some of those regulatory changes that are proposed. I do realize that uh, applying them now is dangerous. I even realize uh, that you could say that even putting them now for something which is in the future is going to have immediately implication because economic agents are forward-looking. All of this I realize. And so after that, it's a question of how to do this. But I think to refuse to, to, to in the name of the transition, uh, to refuse to see the other, I think, is not wise. But I, I think it's equally not wise that in the name of the other one, to try to sink the boat even deeper than it is at the moment. If I can just abuse, I'll just say one last thing. Uh, I do think that, I mean, and I, I already spoke very lengthily, so I, I didn't get a chance to get into the sovereign debt uh, restructuring mechanism. I do believe that this is a serious discussion. Uh, we'll discuss it next week. I think it's, a, it's, it's an important one. And it's not by accident that we are not talking of sovereign debt restructuring mechanism for the UK. We are talking seriously among serious people uh, about a sovereign debt restructuring mechanism for countries in the euro area, not for the global, not for even the EU, for the country. So there is, an, there is an element. And I think that you will see that when you do the discussion on sovereign debt restructuring mechanism, a natural complement of that is the regulatory treatment of sovereign debt. Now, again, I'm not putting forward which 
where and in what time frame. But I think that this problem needs to be tackled. Again, but recognizing fully that the current problem, I 100% agree with you, is a macro problem. And so please not, not answer the macro problem by the regulatory, but let's not ignore it at the same time. That's okay. So, so on the sovereign debt restructuring mechanism, please come to our event next week uh, when we discuss that uh, uh, with, a few, with a few scholars. And Andrea, uh, I think uh, before giving the last word to Giorgio, you, you wanted to still say a few words? No, just, uh, just I mean, again, from a, the debate is very high, but uh, from a low perspective of a, of, a, of a banking regulator, I mean, there are some things I, I, I wouldn't like the people leaving the room with the perception that uh, zero risk weights and, and no risk charge for uh, sovereigns is, uh, as, uh, as is the universal uh, approach that has always been used. I mean, this is simply not true. I mean, the, the, the international banking standards, which are in, in, in place now in the G10, G20, uh, basically say that international banks should not, I mean, should apply internal models. There are incentives to apply internal models. And these internal models should be extended to all the portfolios. And only in Europe, we have had an exception that allows banks to stay on the standardized approach, uh, the so-called permanent partial use, which the Basel Committee has considered as materially non-compliant with international standards. If we go back to the Basel I setting when the zero risk treatment was uh, introduced. I mean, uh, Sebastiano, he, uh, I was working with Sebastian in the Bank of Italy, and uh, uh, you will remember it. Uh, but let's see, the, the standard treatment under Basel I was not a zero risk weight. The zero risk weight was introduced as a discretion to be applied by national authorities. And the rationale behind that discretion was that if you were posting this uh, sovereign assets as collateral in central banking operation, you were likely to receive back the cash for the nominal amount of what you had in your portfolios. Now, if you look at uh, the Eurosystem monetary policy operations right now, actually, if you post sovereigns, there is a haircut on these sovereigns that reflects the uh, credit standing of the issuer. And these haircuts, and that is, in my view, most important, is not really reflecting the default risk of the counterparty. So it's not linked to the restructuring process is linked to the market risk. So the, the loss you would have if you liquidate this collateral in the market in the short term. That's why, in my view, everybody is overlooking it. But the real way forward is to focus very much on the, on the mark to market, on the market risk aspects, rather than on the rest. But this is what is now, since 1988, at the core of international standards. So saying that zero risk weights is the, is the, is the rule since forever is, uh, is in my view, uh, misleading. Okay, uh, Giorgio, you have the concluding remarks and then we really finish. Thank you. I, the first remark I have is that I need to thank Unicredit for sponsoring our journal. And, and you have seen from the debate and the openness and how balanced the debate was that uh, it's a type of sponsorship that leaves total free uh, freedom of discussion and in different positions among the different panelists. So I think this is an important. The liveliness of the debate shows how free we are in setting our ideas and, and dis our discussions. Uh, and, and I forgot to thank them from the beginning. Uh, on substance, I think that, uh, I think that really uh, the issue is, is very interesting and extremely controversial. I think there, there are a few statements that I just I would like to uh, discuss and, and I would like to take for two minutes before we go. 
The first one is uh, the idea that essentially it was uh, banks helped a lot in uh, limiting the sovereign, the peak of the sovereign crisis. No, during the I think this was raised by Eric and also by Mario. This is true, of course. Banks bought a lot of sovereign, and certainly this allowed to compensate the shortages in demand of sovereign. But the point is that probably this was not really sustainable in the longer term. And essentially, if there had not been an intervention by the uh, several intervention of, of uh, fiscal sharing through the SM or monetary intervention to the OMT, the whatever it takes, probably uh, the crisis would not have stabilized. And if you look at the spread, the CDS, this is pretty obvious. So this is the first thing. The second one is that the type, certainly uh, that intervention could have come earlier. And the fact that the, the monetary union was imperfect, as Andre was saying, prevented that to happen. And this was not monetary financing if we compare it to other countries. It simply intervening at a very specific moment in a, in a moment of crisis that maybe has not really to do, or at least for some of the countries, with really debt sustainability or monetary financing, but essentially stabilizing an excessive moment of the crisis. A different moment, and certainly the EU had not the tools to intervene in that moment. The last, uh, the, the, this brings me to the question that uh, Mario was raising about uh, splitting uh, the idea that essentially the question between EDIS and uh, solving the regulation of sovereign bonds, there are two different issues. I think that they are, I, I wouldn't agree with that. I think that probably, I don't think it's only a political issue. I think that really the reason why we're dealing with the issue of dealing with the sovereign is really because there is an element of risk sharing between the banking union and because we have created a banking union. So the two, the, the completion of the two is really necessarily precisely for that reason, which doesn't mean that countries should not be uh, fiscally uh, prudent or essentially implement fiscal policy that are sustainable. That goes without saying, and this is a precondition. But in that framework, in a framework where countries have responsible fiscal policies, I think if we have a banking union, the monetary union, uh, the things of risk sharing through common deposit insurance and essentially uh, having under control and, and dealing with the different asymmetries in the riskiness of sovereign is important. And finally, let me conclude with Eric's philosophy, which I, I like very much, Eric's, the philosophical approach to the sovereign issue that Eric has. But I have a suggestion on that. I wonder whether uh, we should not evolve towards a collective philosophy where essentially, given that we are in a union, Union, collectively, the members of the union take a position and say, uh, our sovereign are not risky. But precisely because we are taking a collective position through an actual mechanism of risk sharing, not because simply individual states can say that as individual nations. That's what I wanted to say. So we, go, we would go for the collective philosophy of, uh, of no risk approach, and then that would work really, probably. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much.